Well, today we continue in our sermon series where we're going through the book of Exodus. The series is titled Exodus Saved for Glory. And today, um, you see our sermon text? It's like a lot, right? It's three chapters beginning in Exodus 25. It's on page 65 in your pew Bible, or it's on this giant sheet right here. Um, now, some of you, this will be a sigh of relief. We won't read all 2,300 plus words from our passage. Instead, we're going to kind of descend in here and there and, and uh, get the big picture. And then we're going to try to understand what it meant back then for the original hearers of this word and then bring it to us today as it is alive and meaningful to us. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Father in heaven, um, your word is truth. Um, your word is a spiritual word to your people. And for that reason, we are utterly dependent upon your Holy Spirit uh, to give life to these words, to give life to our hearts, to open up our ears and our minds so that what is true may be richly planted in us. This is a huge undertaking. And so we ask that, Father, you would Pour out your spirit right now in this room so that your people would know of your desire to dwell with us. I pray. Amen. You know, in the Hamptons, uh, we often hear of famous people who are buying a home and moving out here. So it happens all the time. So we don't get all that worked up when we hear uh, some big name person is buying a house and Moving in, in our passage though, Israelites hear that God is about to build a house in their neighborhood. No doubt they're thinking, God is coming down? The same God who caused us to tremble at Mount Sinai is what? He's, he's moving in? Next door? Think it through. Don't be so quick to let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't let the truth of the situation escape you. Listen, God is coming down from heaven to dwell with his people. My friends, if, if you fail to grasp the implications of this, I'm afraid you perhaps fail to grasp God himself. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you will most certainly underestimate the love of God for you and his desire to be with you. If you've been around Grace for a while, you know we often speak of the theme of the Bible, the overarching theme of the Bible. It's not my words, it's the words of God Himself, where God says throughout Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the overarching theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This theme of Scripture tells us that, that God isn't a God of distant speculation. He's up close, so close that He moves in. And what we'll see this morning, hopefully, is that God longs to be with His people. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that afresh this morning. As we look back to the lens of Christ and through the New Testament into this Old Testament reality of God coming down, we will see that God's pitching of a tent in the midst of his people was just the beginning. First, 
In chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, God says to his people, open up your hearts, collect a contribution so that you can build me a home in your midst. God says, uh, um, you're going to build a tent and you're going to pay for it. <laughs> Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? All right. Verse 8, he says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Listen, God's design for mankind is this, that we would experience his very presence in our lives. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we, we learn that, that, that the Lord used to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That, that's, the, that's the afternoon. But it's true, we're not in the garden anymore. We, we live in a world that is certainly characterized by fear and anxiety, by longing and loss. We sense on the inside that there should be something more to this life than just 70 short years on this beautiful but broken planet. We sense there should be more, but we just lower our heads and try to make the best of it. In his book, Mere Christianity, which is on our bookshelf back there, C.S. Lewis makes this lucid point. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me ask you a question. Do you regularly meditate upon the truth that this world, as it is right now, will never fully satisfy the longings of your soul? People criticize Christians for seeming to be so negative on the world, and it's true, some Christians are, I apologize for them, but mature Christians know some simple truths. They know this. They know that this world was made by a good and glorious God, that evil has somehow entered into this world and has now thoroughly corrupted it. But God has not abandoned this world or his people made in his image. In Christ, God is making all things new. And one day he will usher in a new paradise on earth. Heaven comes down. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. Heaven comes down. This is how much God desires to dwell with his people. And so Christians live with this sober but true understanding. We live in the already but not yet. Christ has come already. Uh, the, the fruits of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ are here already, but the kingdom has not yet fully come. We live in the already not yet. So mature Christians do not abandon this earth, for we know that God day will one day fully restore it. But neither do we place our hope in this world, in this life, for we know that the deep longings of our souls for happiness and peace and friendships and fruitfulness can never be fully achieved in these bodies on this earth. But when God says, I'm coming down, build me a home in your midst, he demonstrates that that other world that C.S. Lewis talks about that you long for is going to be a coming reality someday. For now, God says, build me a tent where I can be present with my people. For now, let this tent in this dusty wilderness be a foreshadowing of what's to come. After instructing Moses to take a collection and build a tent, the Lord begins... Not by giving plans for the tent itself, he first begins with the furniture. Seems like a rather odd way to go about things. 
design the furniture and then the home. I don't know, we got a few architects here. I think they're like, this isn't good. Well, the first piece of furniture that God uh, instructs Moses to build was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why not first describe the tent? Why lead with a piece of furniture? The reason is, is because the Ark of the Covenant is the most important thing in the tent or the tabernacle. It, it, was, pla- it was placed where God manifests His presence on this earth. The Ark was located in the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. God is starting from the inside, and He's working His way out. The Ark was made of solid gold. On the inside of it was uh, um, the Ten Commandments they were placed. It was a somewhat large, but not so big. In my mind, I'm thinking it was probably huge, but only three and three-quarter feet long by two and a half feet wide and tall. It was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. It had a solid gold lid with two cherubim on it with their wings facing each other. Now, cherubim are angels, but they're not the nice, friendly messenger angels like Michael. These are the scary angels that God uses to, to deny access into His holy presence by things that are unholy. Remember in, in Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God put what there? Cherubim. <laughs> to keep them from returning. The space between the cherubim was empty. This is where the Lord's presence was manifested. The psalmist declares these words. He says, the Lord reigns. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. There was something below the cherubim. What was it? It was the the law, the covenant, the, the Ten Commandments. In effect, the tablets were placed under the feet of God. Now this presented a problem. How so? Well, God was above the ark, enthroned above the cherubim, between them. And the law was under His feet, written in stone. And the problem was that the people weren't able to keep this law, to, to maintain this covenant, right? The more we know of the Israelites further on in the book of Exodus, the more we realize they broke all of God's good and holy commands. Moses will be 40 days up on the mountain receiving these words. And when he comes down, the people will have what? You know, they will have created a golden calf that they are worshiping. So do you see the predicament? These words of the covenant that just a few days before they joyfully signed and said, we will do all that you command. Now these words only serve to condemn and judge them which is why the lid is so important. Modern translations call it the atonement cover. Others call it the mercy seat. But it's not seat as in something you sit on, like a pew or a stool or or a chair. The seat means a location. Like when, when someone says the county seat is in Springfield, right? The mercy seat is where the location to where God's mercy is to be found for His people. The mercy seat was approached only once per year on the Day of Atonement. The English word atonement was created by a Bible translator named Tyndale. Uh, it was for a Hebrew word that we had no English equivalent for. So he created the word atonement. It literally means to be at one with. God is telling Moses that this is where my people will experience my mercy so they can be at one with me. 
on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first offer a sacrifice for his own sins, and then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. He would take some of the blood of the bull and he would sprinkle it in the front of the, yes, the mercy seat. In doing so, he showed that the sins of the people were forgiven and that atonement had been made. Now, consider this thought. It's not enough that there was a mercy seat. As Phil Riken simply states, there is no mercy unless there is blood on the mercy seat. Which is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. His dead was a blood sacrifice. The blood of God's very own Son was poured out on the mercy seat. Yes, He died on the cross, but in some ways His, his work was present in heaven itself. The cross, though, is where sinners like you and me find mercy. The cross is the only place where you can find at one meant with God. The question is, have you experienced atonement? Have you found peace at the only mercy seat available, which is the cross of Christ? Next, in verse 23 through 30, the Lord describes uh, a table, and he just calls it a table for bread. That's what it's called. And guess what's on it? It's not a trick question. Bread. <laughs> uh, this piece of furniture was in the larger room, the first room of the tent. Priests used to enter that room daily. The bread table was made of acacia wood and covered with gold, just like the ark. The day before the Sabbath, the priests would be busy baking bread, 12 loaves of bread. And the day before the Sabbath, they would bake it, and then on the Sabbath, they would go in and they would remove last week's bread and put down... 12 fresh loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Now, why do this? Is God hungry? Is God like Santa Claus? you got to set out some cookies for him, you know? No, the answer lies in verse 30. God calls the bread what? The bread of presence. Not present like a gift, but you know what I'm saying. Bread is basic food, is it not? Bread signified that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything we need. And so the table for bread signifies what? That God is present with his people to provide for them all that they need. And Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. People brought fresh loaves into God's presence every week to symbolize God's constant awareness of their every need. Isn't that amazing? God is constantly aware of all of his people's needs. Oh, that we would believe that this morning. And of course, the bread of the tabernacle pointed to Christ. It was symbolic of his own body given for us. Hear these words of Jesus as they're recorded in John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my life. Nearby the table was another piece of gold furniture, golden lampstand. It was a seven lamp uh, candelabra, beautiful, made from one solid piece of gold hammered out with great skill. It was made to look like a flowering olive tree. 
the priests were to maintain the lamp every night. It was supposed to burn from sundown to sunrise. Now, listen, imagine imagine being in that camp at nighttime. Before you turn in for bed, you, you turn off your lamp, right? You put out the, the fire on the wick. But then perhaps you look towards the Lord's tent and then filtering out from underneath the curtain, there is what? You see the light. Lots of light. You know, here in the Hamptons, there are so many homes that are only lived in during the summer. You, you drive by them in the winter, night after night, and there's no lights on them at all. Home after home, you drive by. And you know there's nobody inside. The lights are off, and the heat's set at 50. <laughs> but in the temple, in this tent rather, in this tabernacle, the lights are on. Remember the old Motel 6 ads? Tom Bodet would always end the commercial by saying what? We'll leave the lights on for you. The sense that the Israelites would have had is this. God is with us. He is in our midst. His, his lights are on. What a comfort that would be. On the dark nights in which you're fearful or afraid, where is God leading us? We know that He is there. Now, more than that, the golden lampstand represents that the Lord is life and light to His people. As God's promise was to give life and light, it's been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. At the beginning of John's Gospel, we read these words, in Him, that's Jesus, in Him was life. And the life was the light of man. Jesus is life for this world. Scripture says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. To know Christ is, is to experience His mercy and His grace. And it means life for you. And He is light too. John chapter 9, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Now He's either insane or He's true. Speaking truth. He's not a madman. He says, I am the light of the world. The light and the life symbolized in the golden lampstand are now embodied in Jesus Christ. The light and life He gives are, are eternal. And they bring to us the reality of what C.S. Lewis said earlier. Remember I read, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus is the light and the life that brings that reality to you. There is no other way. After describing the furniture, now God gets into the details of the tent itself. Chapter 26, I believe. It's called the tent of the meeting or the tabernacle. It was a tent wherein only the priests could go. It was like 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. The first room was called the holy place. It was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. Inside there was the bread table and the beautiful candelabra of the golden lampstand. Past that first room was the inner room. It was separated by a beautiful veil. It was called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. It was 15 feet by 15 feet. Only the high priest can enter there, and then only on one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. Now, I'm not going to read all 37 verses of chapter 26, but at least let me draw your attention to how detailed these instructions are and how elegant the materials were. He begins in verse 1 by detailing the curtains which, which hung all around this tent. They were, they were, they were hung on, um, on poles. He begins by detailing the curtains. And in verse 1 he says that the curtains were to be made of fine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarn with images of 
cherubim stitched in. These curtains were to hang on acacia wood frames which were overlaid with gold. They were to be constructed so they could easily be taken apart and carried because God was on the move. Now, picture this. Covering those three, that covering that curtain in the frame were three layers, three tents, one on top of the other. And from the tent that was closest to the, as you work your way to the outer tent, the material went from really, really nice and fancy to like basic, right? And, and so much so that the, that the very outer covering of the tabernacle was animal skin, most likely goat skin. It was tough. It was waterproof. It was an ugly brown. Certainly it wasn't ornate or fancy. In other words, check this out. If you were to look at the outside of God's tent, other than for the size of it, you would think it looks like any other tent in the wilderness. Plain old goat skin. But oh, on the inside, glory, beauty, honor, splendor. It's like the Christian life. It looks so ordinary on the outside. It looks like just everybody else. But God is doing something on the inside. Glory, honor, beauty. Problem was, most Israelites never got to enter the tent, let alone go into the Holy of Holies. Now, what was God showing our Old Testament brothers and sisters? Clearly, they would have understood that the tabernacle was here on earth to declare that a piece of heaven has now come down. In some way, the dwelling place of God is now with man. I will be their God. They will be my people. That is what our Old Testament brothers and sisters would have recognized. But we have something far more profound to recognize. That is, Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle of God. How so? Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 886. Or you can just listen along. Maybe you've memorized it. I don't know. John. John begins his gospel speaking of some being or person. The Greek word is logos. Uh, it's a capitalized W word. There's some word that he begins speaking about. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then John goes on to say that this Word, along with the Father, made everything in creation. And in verse 4 we read that in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. John is saying that this Word, uh, this Word is God. He's the light of the world. He's come into the world. And then in verse 14 we read these remarkable words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. That was anathema to the Greeks. The Greeks were like, body bad, spirit good. They like logos. Oh, logos. That's a great word. Principle. Word. But John says the Word became flesh. Not a body. Soma was a good word. Sarks, meat, the Word, this divine Son became flesh. Of course, this is Jesus, right? And it says He dwelt among us. Now, some of you know this, but for those who don't, the Greek word that we translate with the word dwelt 
is the is the Greek it's the verb eskenosin. It comes from the noun, it's related to the noun, which is skene, which means you guessed it, skene is a tabernacle. Now, um, spell check doesn't like this, but you know you can change the word dwelt to tabernacled. And you get a sense for what John is saying here. The Word became flesh. The Son of God tabernacled in that tent of flesh on earth for us. The old tabernacle in the wilderness was crafted from dried animal skins. But it points to the beautiful reality that God came to dwell on earth in real, living, breathing, blood-filled human flesh. You know, by Jesus' day, that, that traveling tabernacle turned into a temple. It was actually the second version of it. In many ways, though, it was quite similar. It had the three main areas. And between the holy place and the most holy place, there was this giant curtain. It's said to have been as thick as a human hand. I know hands are a little bit smaller back then, but it's still pretty darn thick, you know, five inches or so. And at the moment Jesus died to make atonement uh, between for us, for God, to have peace with him, do you recall what happened at the moment he died in the temple? The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now, who tore it? Not human beings. Human beings don't have the strength to tear a five-inch thick piece of curtain. And if you tried to do it, the temple guards would rush in and put a spear to your throat. But also know this. It was not torn from the bottom to the top as if a human was doing. It was torn, wow, from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. It was torn by God himself. Why, why would he do that? What is he telling us? God is telling his people no longer is there a curtain separating sinful man from a holy God. No longer will we need priests. No longer will we need animal sacrifices over and over. Christ, the Son of God, came and tabernacled with us. And He died to make atonement. And He's done it all. He's broken down the wall, the barrier. Here's how the New Testament book of Hebrews describes it. it, it the writer re refers literally to this tabernacle intent. Listen to what he says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have, that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That Old Testament tabernacle was meant to point us to the tent of the tabernacling Son of God who went into the heavenly realms for us into the greater tabernacle in heaven where his blood was poured out in a perfect sacrifice. You can't make this stuff up, maybe, right? This is not a human invention. You and I never would have thought to do this. Lastly, we have the courtyard. In chapter 27, verses 9-19, through 19, the Lord describes His design of, of the court of the tabernacle. There's a, there's a picture of it in your, in your bulletin. The courtyard is 100 cubits by 50 cubits. 
In other words, it's like 150 feet by 75 feet wide. 11,250 square feet. That's how big the courtyard is. The courtyard was where worshipers would come in. Just the regular townsfolk would come and draw near and offer sacrifices. But also, they would celebrate. Verses 1-8 through eight describes this bronze altar that's placed inside the courtyard. It's, it's a, a giant Weber grill, my friends. That's really what it is. Big old grill. Upon which the sacrifice, there's five different sacrifices. Don't have time to go in it, but some of the sacrifice, like the burnt offering, was entirely consumed. The whole thing. But there are other sacrifices where just part of the animals consumed and the rest was cooked. And the people of God would, were like, like the peace offering. They would gather around and they would celebrate great thankfulness for, for being at peace with God. This, this courtyard was like a picnic area in which God, people would draw near to God with great joy and delight. Now, every day there was at least two sacrifices. At least two. But most days there was far more than that. There was a lot of sinning going on back then. Um, and so the daily sacrifices would always be before the people. They were a constant reminder that sin separates you from God. But also, listen, God in His mercy provides a way. And so understand this. A faithful Old Testament believer delighted to enter into this courtyard. Though the courtyard was all the closer they could get to God, they longed to be there. Why? They delighted in the love of God. How He called them His own. How He cared for them. How He knew of their needs and attended to them. Later, when the more permanent temple was built in Jerusalem, there were psalms that were written literally so you could sing them as you're going up the temple mount. God's people would sing. I suggest perhaps meditate on some of these psalms of ascent this week. They begin in Psalm 120. There's a number of them. But Psalm 121 has these words. Here's some of the words that worshipers would sing. They would say, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Talk about the song to sing. I feel convicted that I don't sing that song like I should. How about you? I think about how many times I come to worship and I'm like, gosh, I hope my sermon is good enough for this week or I hope so-and-so's there. I hope we get more than 12 people, right? How does the music sound? I think I need to change something in in the soundboard, right? I I don't know about you. How do you come to church? You're like yelling the whole way and then you walk in the doors. Hi, how's it going? We should delight with great joy to be here because this is the place where we, where we see the visible reminder that we have a once and for all sacrifice for sin. That we are dearly loved, cherished children of God. That we belong not just to Christ, but to each other. And that puts a joy in our heart and a song on our lips. The ancient worship, worshipers delighted to enter the gates of the courtyard. How much more so us today? Now, Now that Christ has risen and ascended back into heaven, something spectacular has happened. 
Jesus promised his disciples on the night in which he went to the cross, what did he say? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. They were fearful. They were afraid. So he said that he and his, and his, and his father would send the comforter, the, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, so that God would not just be with his people, but dwell in his people. In Acts chapter 2, you can read when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, the church. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, it's because you belong to the church. It's not the other way around. You have the Holy right? You don't, you're, 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 you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, so you're a Christian and therefore you go to church. By the Spirit of God, you've been brought in to His people. Now, this morning, we've seen that in the Old Testament, God drew near to His people in a tent in the wilderness. God brought a slice of heaven down to earth. And then we see how God has taken on human flesh Himself and He's tabernacled in flesh and blood for us. And now God has come to dwell not in tents with animal skin, but in His very own people, the church. Which is why Scripture calls us the body of Christ. He is our head. We is His body. We are His body. The Apostle Paul spoke of this reality in Colossians chapter 1, where he writes, How great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, the hope of glory? That's a whole other sermon, my friends. There's so many things that the Holy Spirit does for us. But let me just say this one thing. When God places His Spirit in you, the Spirit of God seals you as His very own. You cannot undo that seal. Jesus said, all who come to me, none will fall out of, uh, all who come to me will, none of them will fall out of my Father's hands. And so, a seal was like ancient kings when they would take hot wax and put on a letter and then take their signet ring and they would press it down and then it would cool off making a permanent seal. So to the Holy Spirit seals you as God's child. I'm not making this up. Ephesians 1.14 Paul writes, All who believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit or guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God dwells in you. It seals you as belonging to God. It's a, it's a deposit in your soul that lets us know that that inheritance, that day to come, is ours. We just need to be patient. We live in the already the not yet. Christ has come. He's poured out His Spirit on the church, but one day Christ will return and He's going to remake this entire universe and this very earth that we walk upon. This very earth where we go, there's something that I'm longing for that this earth cannot bring me. The Spirit of God sealed upon your soul is saying that day is coming for you. Don't place your hope in this world, but in that age to come. Earlier, Sharon read from Revelation chapter 21 where it says heaven is coming down. A new heaven, a new earth. The whole thing is coming down, not just a little tent. Right? You, you figure that? For some of you, this is going to blow your mind. You're not even thought of that. 
You're going to be resurrected in a physical body. You were made a physical, spiritual being. And when Christ returns, you will have a, a new body, glorious body, a sin-free body, dwelling on a world where there is no sorrow or shame or guilt or any of that. And as John heard this loud voice in heaven in Revelation 21 saying, Behold what? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God will be with them as their God. There it is again. The very end of the Bible reaffirms the entire theme of the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. Actually, it says, I will be your God and you will be my son. Firstborn son. That's the rights. Don't get hung up on it if you're a woman here. Like The son was the one who had all the rights of inheritance. And that is for you if you're in Christ. I will be your God. You will be my people. C.S. Lewis speaks of that world we long for in Christ Jesus. That world is ours. By His Spirit dwelling in us, God being with us, we are sealed for that day. Now, let me ask you, how does that change you right now? In the moment. Your hopes and dreams. The things you've been longing for. The things you've been setting your, your hopes upon. How does that cause you maybe to let loose of some and grab some others? I don't know. I, I don't know you at all that well. I just know that this word is convicting to all of us. But don't just be convicted. Be hopeful, right? Be hopeful. This is what's coming for those who are in Christ. God is going to dwell with us. And the scripture says we will see Jesus and we will be like him. I don't know about you, but I need that. I want that. And in Christ Jesus, that future is secure for us. Let's pray. Well, Father, you can't make this up. I mean, even the greatest story writer on earth could not come up with this plan. We know, therefore, that it is divine. Uh, we know, therefore, that, that we are in great need of this. And, and we know, therefore, that this amazing truth is beyond tracing out. It's beyond comprehension. And yet, in some way, by your Spirit in us, we actually can comprehend it, at least well enough to long for it and be thankful. We pray you'd press deeper into us the reality of the age to come, that you are a God who longs to dwell with your people, to not be at a distance, but to be up close and personal. Let us live out that reality, we pray. Amen.